All right, good morning. It's been a busy, busy week in my household, but I'm here. We're painting, we're renovating, we're moving into a new bedroom. And the Lord put up my heart to do um, the Bible in 90 days, so that's just added a bit of reading to do. Plus my BSF, I'm studying at BSF as well. And so we're diving into the Gospel of John, which is good because we're doing a whole Gospel over a year, which means we're only doing about 18 verses a week. So that's manageable on top of everything else. Um, but studying the Gospel of John's been, been awesome. It's just so different to the other three Gospels, and which they call, I think they call it the synoptic Gospels, where they're more talking about what Jesus did, whereas John dives into who Jesus is and his nature and his character. And I really believe there's nothing more important than getting to know who he is at his core and becoming like him. And so John says these, offers us these seven I am statements, which I think are beautiful. He says, I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the gate for the sheep, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth and the life, I am the true vine. That's who he says he is. They're amazing. But then in Matthew 16, he actually asks his disciples a question and he says, all right, this is who I am, but who do you say I am? I reckon that would have caught them off guard and it actually made me think too, you know, who do we say Jesus is? Not what he can do, but actually who he is. And A.W. Tozer put it well when he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I thought that was something to think about. But Jesus says all these amazing statements about his majesty and his glory and his power and his preeminence. And yet at the beginning of John, we see John the Baptist, he's declaring to the crowds that there's this person among you literally standing in their midst that he's not even worthy to tie his sandals. He's not even worthy to touch. Literally walking this earth for 30 years, he's amongst you. The one who made the world, the world was made through him. And then I thought, well, how can this be? How can they have the king of kings, the creator of the universe, and as it declares in the beginning of John, and the his own didn't recognise him. They actually could not have picked him out of the crowd. And to be fair, you know, I believe in it's because in Matthew 21.5 it says, Tell the daughter of Zion, which is referring to Jerusalem, the Jews, the people, Behold, your king cometh meek. Your king's coming meek. It says he's coming humble. It says that the, the foundational trait of your king will be humility. He didn't say, I'm a king coming in power. He didn't say, I'm a king coming in gifting and calling and ministry. He actually just said, I'm a king coming to serve. I'm a king coming meek. And so I thought that was something I really wanted to delve into today, that quality of humility and how that's birthed in us and intertwine that or illustrate it through the metaphor that he uses of those I am statements that he's the good shepherd and that he's the gate for the sheep. So hopefully I can do that today. Let's pray though first. So thank you, Father, for this word. Thank you that you are these wonderful, wonderful I am statements, Jesus. They're just so above whatever we can think or imagine. And I just pray, Lord, that this quality of humility that I'm going to be talking about today would touch the hearts of every one of us today, that we would not just hear those words, but we would actually take them and become more like you. May the heart of us become the heart of who you are, Jesus, and that's humble and meek. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought before we get into 
humility, I thought it was a good starting point to look at pride because Eve, as we know, that was she was contemplating the fruit and her final decision was based on the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And if we even take a step back from that, we see Satan, you know, he was this beautiful angel. He was, he was the one who was the, the lead worshipper in heaven and it was pride that came before his fall. And so the origin of sin is rooted in pride. And so I thought, looking at the definitions of pride, I found three interesting points that came up to define it. So first, pride is, you know, it's bragging and boasting. It's, it's, it's in the way that we talk. It can be a simple thing that tries to make us look or sound a certain way. The second one adds a bit more to it. It says, pride is an empty assurance which trusts in its own power, the work of its own hands and its own resources and will shamefully despise and violate divine laws and human rights. And I thought, that's a mouthful. We need to sum that up a bit, a bit better. So what I felt that was saying was, it's a confidence in self to fulfil our own selfish ambitions, and so it means it will happily blur the lines of right and wrong and, and, and do this to get what it wants, regardless of whose toes it's stepping on. Basically, that's what I thought it was saying. And the third thing was, is that it's showing a lack of respect and an arrogance which trusts in the stability of earthly things. That was more of a spiritual definition, that pride is actually having a lack of respect and arrogance that trusts in the stability of earthly things. So I'll go back to that one in a moment. But what I realised is, is if pride is our problem, and we see these definitions, these are the problems of the world, if, we, if that's our problem... Humility is the antidote. If pride's our problem, then humility is the antidote. It's the thing that's going to fix it. And the beautiful thing is that all of us have walked in humility, a pure humility, because humility could never be part of our testimonies, because we couldn't brag about saving ourselves. We couldn't trust in our own power. We couldn't trust in the work of our own hands or the people we might know or our connections. It was simply a divine work. That salvation is. We have to trust in and believe who he is and not in what we've done or, or, um, or who we are. It's simply him. And so we may have shown this lack of respect towards God before we were saved. But upon that very moment of salvation, there couldn't be any arrogance that trusted in the stability of earthly things because we know salvation is a divine work of being sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is so outside the laws and bounds of anything earthly. It's, it's divine, it's spiritual. So what I thought was, well, if we needed humility then, right at the beginning of the journey, we're going to need humility as we continue on. So then I looked at the definitions of humility in the Greek, and they see it as this lowliness of mind. They think it's like this low or modest opinion of itself. But then I thought, well, humility, it doesn't equal a doormat, though. Some people can lean that way. But when we combine that with the Hebrew word, which is anava, the Hebrews feel humility is to occupy your God-given space in the world. I thought that was beautiful. It's just to occupy your God-given space. So that's not to overestimate yourself, and it's certainly not to underestimate yourself. It's to walk in the calling God has for you. And then I found this quote that I felt tied these two things together. And it says, every person should have two pockets. In one pocket should be a piece of paper saying, I am but dust and ashes. And when you're feeling too proud, reach into your pocket and have a read. And then in the other pocket, have a piece of paper saying, 
For my sake was the world created. For my sake was the world created. And when you're feeling disheartened or lowly, pull that out of your pocket and have a read. And what this quote's saying is we're the joining of two worlds. We are fashioned from clay. We are but dust and ashes. And yet our spirit is the breath of Adonai. Isn't that beautiful? We're both. So I felt, let's get into it now. How, how do we actually walk in this humility? What does that mean? And I felt the Good Shepherd displays that perfectly. And the first thing I was noting in John about Jesus is that humility must first start with laying down your life. I think I've said it before about surrender, but I want to dive into it a bit deeper. Because in John 10:11 it says, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. Straight away, when I was thinking of this good shepherd, I thought of David. You know, I thought he's a king, but he had a really good foundational understanding of what shepherding was. You know, he lived that life from a young boy. And his prolific psalm, obviously, Psalm 23. He starts with that beautiful declaration, the Lord is my shepherd. He didn't say the Lord is my king, and he was a king, but he said the Lord is my shepherd. He chose that metaphor for a reason, because he understood that way of life, and he knew what that really meant. I, however, am not a shepherd, so I had to go and research that way of life, and there was a point as I was researching that I almost couldn't connect with the way that they lived back then. And I actually thought, the Lord's going to send me to fill in phase to be a shepherdess for a week. I seriously thought, he's going to throw me in the deep end, thankfully for your sake. <laughs> thankfully that did not happen. Um, I am not built for that. Um, you know, the Lord seen me on my sister's horse farm, literally running away from horses, throwing hay over my shoulder. So he, he knew. <laughs> Um, but there was so much in that research that I just made so many connections to laying down your life. And I wanted to share one that stood out. And so one of the principal duties of a shepherd was to find, obviously, food and water for the sheep. And when it was springtime, the, the, the shepherd could stay closer to the village. There was abundant pasture close to home. But when that was you know, resourced out, he had no choice but to go out into the wilderness of Judea and actually find the food sources. And so obviously he'd be spending night after night out in the wilderness. And what he would do then to protect the sheep, he'd actually back them into something like a walled enclosure, could be a canyon. Um, But sometimes that wasn't available. So what they did is they built these waist-high stone walls out in the desert and they would top them with thorny branches. And so the sheep had only one entrance or exit and it was about the, the length of the shepherd, that sort of size. It was one entry and exit. And so the shepherd could choose to lay the thorny branches, but more often than not, the shepherd would himself lay straight down on the ground and become the door, become the gate for the sheep. So anything wanting to get in, anything you know, um, out, in the, out in the wilderness, wolves and all that kind of thing, they'd have to step over the shepherd to get to the sheep. And this is why he tells us, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep don't listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and find good pasture. I just, I just felt that his humility is just captured in this. When I actually understood what he was saying and connecting it to that way of life, 
He was saying, I am that lowly shepherd that will lie on the dirt to become your gate, to become that gate that protects the sheep. He actually chose to lower himself. The king of kings chose to come down and raise the status of the flock. We think they're animals. The shepherd actually had to put the the sheep's welfare, you know, above his own welfare. And they were animals. And I just thought... You know, he, he actually had to submit to the challenges of human existence to do that, to protect his flock. And that's why it says in Philippians, you know, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Jesus actually chose this. He says, I'm going to humble myself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so there's the foundation of humility. And I think I've said it before that there's plenty of people in our life that we would lay our life down for. They're all coming to mind right now as I say that. And the disciples also held that deep affection for Jesus. They said, they were convinced, yes, I would lay my life down for you, Jesus. I think it was Matthew 26, he said, Jesus said, tonight all of you are going to desert me. For the scripture says, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And Peter in his boldness says, no, 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 Lord, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus said, no, you're going to deny me three times. And he goes, no, no, even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. And we know how that ended. But Jesus' words were true. He said it and he performed it and he went through with it. You know, his demonstration of humility said, I will lay my life down for the sheep to the point of death. And it's an important question we also need to ask ourselves if we were being martyred, would we lay our life down for Jesus? And that is part of being humble. But I I really have this strong conviction that humility has to go many, many steps further than that. Because in John, Jesus says, I lay down my life. I lay down my life. I lay down my life. He repeats it three times just in that chapter alone. What I think he's saying is, yes, There is the point of the cross. This will be the pivotal moment of reconciliation between God and man. But I have laid down my life long before this moment of the cross. I've laid my life down like a shepherd, going in and out, you know, into the fields, into the wilderness, leading you through all sorts of conditions. It was hard. It was hot. It was cold nights to care for the sheep. But he led his sheep to provision, not taking into the personal account the things he had to suffer along the way. And it was at this point, you know, usually when you preach, you'd you'd give a a personal example, but I honestly couldn't think of anything from my own life that would compare, would even come close to the things that I have read so far and what he did. And so I thought it's only fair that I give one of Jesus' examples. And the one we were reading this week in John was about the Samaritan woman. And, you know, you think of Samaritans and Jews, they just didn't associate at all. They, you know, they hated each other. There was a long history there of then the Samaritans saying that they did follow the God of Israel, but yet their actions were not proving that. And so the Jews kept a very wide berth to the point that they would actually go around Samaria. They would take a six-day journey to walk instead of the three-day journey that it took to go through Samaria. How, would, would, we, would we do that? Would we walk an extra three days to get around someone? <laughs> Um, But Jesus didn't do that. He went, I'm going to go through Samaria and I'm going to meet this woman at the well. And when he got there, first of all, he was associating with a woman on his own. That was just not done. Second thing he did was ask the woman for a drink from from her vessel. If he drank from that vessel, he would be 
deemed unclean, you know, by drinking that cup. And so, and it's interesting because in John 4, 4, it says he had to go through Samaria. It's like Jesus was just, he's like, no, there's no other option for me. I have a moment with this woman. I have to go there. I have to be with this woman. She's got a a date of destiny with the Lord because Jesus had no fear of man. He took no opinion of man. Culture could not hold him. Culture had nothing on him. He had no offense of man that could hold him back from meeting that woman. He didn't ascribe to the culture of the time. And he pointed to her sin and her heart issue. But he did it with such a compassion and tenderness that she goes running back to the people who have outcasted her saying, here's a man who told me everything I ever did. There was not even shame in her voice. She's like, he told me everything. There was because this way Jesus encountered her must have been full of just tenderness and love for her. She saw no condemnation on his face. There was just pure humility. And so what I'm trying to say is that he is this humble and fragrant offering. Jesus, every person he ministered to, every moment of his life, the way he would heal and and meet people exactly where they're at, it was just so full of compassion and tenderness. And he endured the persecution along the way, not to even mention the cross experience itself. So what I'm trying to say here is that humility then, it must be demonstrated in action. It can't, you can't just you know, think that you're humble. It actually, it's, it's a life laid down. It's a complete surrender to your own will. Humility is a servant heart. This is the mind of Christ. This is the Christ who washed his disciples' feet. And then the disciples turn around and say, Jesus... Who's going to be the greatest amongst us? Who? And they're debating amongst themselves. Who's going to be the greatest? And he goes, you just don't get it. The greatest amongst you will be the one who serves. I'm the, I'm the, you know, the demonstration of this. And he said, whoever exalts himself, whoever does this kind of boasting and buffs themselves up, I'm going to humble you. <laughs> but let's start with humility because if you start there, I will exalt you. And this is what Jesus did. This is how the Father could exalt exalt Jesus because he first went low. He first went so low he came to serve. And I got this little pearl at 10 p.m. at night, of course. The spirit starts chattering in my ear. And he just whispered to me, humility is about motive, the motive of the heart. That was it. That's all he said. Humility is about motive, the motive of the heart. And I really started to chew on this and I thought, I get it, I get it, because motive is our reason for doing something. Motive, it, it drives us. It's the thing that propels us to go and do something. And so even our motive, I was really chewing on, well, how can pride get in? And I'm thinking, it can even get in in the way that we pray. You know, pride can get in, in if we want to seem more spiritual, if we want to pray the perfect prayer, if we, if, if we want to kind of exalt ourselves. We can even do it in those Christian things. Pride can be hidden because it's the motive of the heart. Why are we doing it? Why are we praying? Why are we sharing our testimony? It's simply because we want to glorify him. That's got to be the motive. It's got to be the motive of the heart. And I, had, I will share this story, and it's not about me. It's probably my pride, someone else's humility. Um, but it was last year, and I, I was going through a bit of a rough time, and I went down to the beach with the kids, and I'm just you know, mulling over, moving over here, and I was really struggling to set in and other things happening in life. And I was walking along the beach, and I thought, what's going to make me feel better? Maybe I should go talk to someone about Jesus. And so I saw someone walking along the beach, 
And I went, that's the one. I just felt drawn to this person. And he was a tall, slender man. And as I got closer, I realised that his face was just ravaged, clearly by cancer. Like he had chunks cut out of his face. It was awful. And he had like chunks out of his leg. And he just, yeah, I just can't explain it. He just looks skeletal. And I thought, oh, he needs help. Yep, he's the one. I need to speak to him. Pride. Thinking I can help this, this person. And so I start saying to him, oh, what a beautiful day it is, you know, how are you going? And he said, yeah, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? I said, oh, isn't the Lord good to us? He gives us such beautiful sunshine. And he goes, yep, he is good to us. And I went, oh, you're a Christian. And then he pulled out his cross. He had his cross hiding underneath. He goes, oh, yes, I follow the Lord. And we got into this conversation. I found out a bit about his life. And I'm like, oh, he needs prayer. You know, he, he, he definitely needs something here. And anyway, he started drawing things out of me. He starts getting my story and I'm like weeping and he's just ministering to me and it humbled me. This man did not need my help. This man did not need me to pray for him. He had the spirit of God. He ministered to me for 20 minutes, keeping my eyes on Jesus. He, he, he totally humbled me. I felt, you know, the, the presence of the Lord on him. And I think because his motive was so pure, he, he, he didn't care what was happening to his body. He's like, I get to minister to the nurses. I get to minister to the doctors. I get to minister to my family. Um, <laughs> what a icon. He was just beautiful. That name was Harry. I'll never forget him. I can't wait to meet him on the other side because he changed my perspective on a lot of things. But that's the purity of heart God's looking for. Humility isn't always going to be an easy walk. It's not easy. And Peter blundered it. <laughs> we look at Peter. If we go back to Peter, you know, but the way Jesus restored him was beautiful. Jesus says after the resurrection when he meets Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And then he says, the Lord says, all right, Peter, you've repented I can see your hearts turn back to me. Now feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And the words in the Hebrew when we're looking at those, feeding the lambs meant he was meeting the basic needs and welfare of the new believers that were going to come into the flock. And the tend my sheep or the feed my sheep referred to the teaching and nourishing and training and equipping the more mature believers that were going to be coming into his care. And so what I believe he was asking Peter is, all right, you've repented and you've turned to, me, turned to me, but now I need you to lay down your life for others. Now I actually need you. I'm asking you to surrender your own will. I'm asking you to pick up this plan that I have for you. And Jesus eventually said to, to Peter, yes, one day you're going to have to gird yourself to, and walk into a death that you didn't wish for. But first, lay down your life. Walk into this calling that I have for you. And we see that. We see Peter totally sold out for Jesus because it was his surrender, this humility, that lended itself for this humility to move in and buck out the pride that was distorting who he was in Christ so that he could fulfill that mission. And that's exactly what humility does. It asks us these questions. It will ask us the hard questions. It will confront the pride. It will say, where's the pride in your heart? That is, when things aren't going the way we expect or happening in our timing, where does humility come in? Will I surrender this plan and pick up the Lord's plan? It'll ask us, am I actually settled in sonship and my identity in Christ or am I still striving in other things and wanting to do it my own way? 
And do I actually believe that by knowing him and believing in him and trusting in him is all that I need to do, is all that I, all that I am, and that I'm blessed beyond measure because I'm knowing Jesus? Like, these are hard questions that, that humility will ask of us. But I believe when we get to that place of humility, and I'm still working on it, that that's when a true servant heart can shine like Harry. You know, that's the servant heart that Jesus had on the earth, and it lends itself to these incredible opportunities to shine for him. So that's surrender. My second point, then, is that if humility is surrendered, then the next thing we must do is place our entire dependence on God. And I loved the communion message. I was like, we could, I don't even need to read this. Just go back to the communion message. You summed it up beautifully. But I'll, I will. I'll keep going. Um, but there was a book by Andrew Murray on humility. I haven't read the whole book, but one of his quotes stood out to me. And he said, humility is the place of entire dependence on God and is from the very nature of things the first duty. It's our first duty and highest virtue of the creature meaning the human. He was from a little while back, so he called people creatures. And humility is the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. And so then if humility is dependence, what does that actually look like? How can we actually walk that out? And the Lord led me back to Psalm 23. And when I read it through the lens of dependence, it just brought on this whole new meaning. So if we go back to the very first line, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What I think the Lord's saying there too is that if he's the shepherd, he actually wants us to act like sheep. And you're like, I don't want to act like sheep. (laughs) But he makes this big distinction because he says at the end, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. And so there's something in this, the nature of a sheep and a goat that the Lord wants to communicate. And when you look at goats, you know, they're, they're bolder, they're more venturesome, they're the ones climbing those rocky hills, they're, they get into mischief, they um, break into grain fields, they're headstrong, they're more vigorous, and they're just generally more difficult to lead than sheep. Whereas we don't like to be called sheep because we think we're blind followers of a flock, but while they might not be as independent or curious as goats, I think they're far from passive or unintelligent. Um, because in the research, I'm not, I don't know what, you probably have something completely different to say, but in the research, <laughs> um, these animals were strategically social. They had individual needs and preferences. They got, they had emotions. They, you know, they show, I watched a video clip of them getting frustrated and disappointed when they didn't get their food on time. Um, <laughs> and they had personalities. And I thought, you know what? The Lord sees us that way. He sees us as that sheep. He sees us as that particular valuable sheep within the flock. You know, he sees the individual. That's why he says, I would leave the 99 to go for that one. And so a second part of being the sheep is, you know, the sheep doesn't go up to the, the shepherd at the, the front of the line and say, ah, Shepherd, how long are we going to get to the pasture? You know, is it just a couple more areas? Mary at the back there is feeling a bit tired. No, they don't, they don't do that. They just follow the shepherd. You know, they follow the way that he goes. And so I believe that then if we claim Jesus as our shepherd, then that then gives us access to the rest of Psalm 23. So let's get into the next part. He says... He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. 
And when I thought of thinking of pastures, it's the shepherd. He knows where to go. He knows the pace to drive the flock. He knows the best route that needs to be taken, even if that route is a little bit longer than we wanted it to be. And there were difficult terrains to cross. When you look at pictures of the wilderness of Judea, that's a hard land to be crossing. But they had to trust their shepherd. And when they did get to pasture, Jesus is saying here, I don't just want you to eat and go, eat and run. He's saying, I actually want you to lie down. I actually need you to rest here. I actually need you to keep eating and feeding on this pasture. He gives us a resting place. And how many times do we do that and end up burnt out Martha's where we just think we can keep going to the next pasture and wait for the next one? No, he needs you to rest here. And in Song of Songs, I don't remember the verse, but in Song of Songs in chapter 1, it talks about where do you lay your flock at noonday? Every day the, the, the shepherd was laying his flock at noonday. We need to be resting in Jesus every day. It needs to become part of our part of just what we do. He, he wants us to be Mary's at his feet and then go out and be the Martha that we, that we need to be for the church and for the people and for us. But it's certainly not in our own strength. We need to rest in him and eat of his pasture every day with him. And then if we look at the waters, I didn't know this, but sheep are scared of drinking from water that's flowing. They will not go near roaring rivers. They don't like it. And so the shepherd would have to go to great lengths then to find um, the flow of water that's going to be still for them to rest at. And so that means he might even have to dig channels off the side of the river um, for it to be still for them. And when I think of water, I think, you know, the Lord really wants us to drink slowly and deeply because water both refers to Holy Spirit, refreshing in the Holy Spirit, but also refers to his word, you know, refreshing in the water of his word. And so these two things that he says right from the beginning, you need to do this, you need to rest in me and you need to, to, to get into my word. You need to be refreshed every day in my word. And that makes us completely dependent, not on what we say. Then it becomes completely dependent on what he's speaking. The next part of this is he says, he restores my soul he leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And you think of the soul. The soul is, of course, our mind, our will, our emotions, our intellect, our imagination. And what he's saying here is he restores the soul. That means any of our broken heart, any of our grief, any of our pains, any of our rejection, all of our betrayals, all those things, he's the one who's going to fix it. We need to come to him. To be able to have him lead us through that path of righteousness. That's a really important part. Our, our souls need restoration. And so humility is in that because we're actually saying, Jesus, I need your help. I need you. And, and as we receive this restoration, then he's able to lead us on this path of righteousness. And the standout quality of a sheep was they have excellent hearing. They can actually distinguish um, different sounds and voices and they'll learn their shepherd's face and voice very quickly. And I even read that they can remember their shepherd's face and voice for up to two years after they've been with them. So it's that vital. They knew. The sheep know how vital it is to stay close and know who their shepherd is, to lead them and, and steer them away from any dangers that might come. And so that's part of being led on the path. How can we be led on the path if we don't know his voice? You know, that was a big part of my journey, tuning in to the shepherd's voice so we can humbly follow him down that narrow road. The next one is, yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, here it comes. It's the one we don't want to go down. 
He doesn't give us a choice. He doesn't say, if you go down the valley, he's saying, you're going to go down the valley. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) It's a hard season. It's going to feel like death. It's the shadow of death, though. Remember, it's not actually death. There is life at the end of it, but it's like a shadow. So we'll feel very much like death in those moments. But he says, I've got a rod and I've got a staff. And so the rod would be this, it's like a policeman's bat and it had like this knob on the end of it and the shepherd would drive nails into it. And this is what David would have used when he was fighting off that lion and bear. It was imperative that the, the shepherd has this weapon. Whereas the, the staff is, of course, that stick we see in all the pictures, you know, with the crook at the end of it. And that thing was led, um, used to direct the sheep, count the sheep, direct the sheep. Even it could also be used as a weapon. And so putting those two things together, you know, these are tools used by our shepherd to protect us from external things happening. But it was also for discipline. And Jesus says, I will discipline those that I love. And so we're going to have to learn to take those things on board. And the thing about sheep is they have excellent um, peripheral vision. They're really good at seeing behind them and looking backwards at the things behind them. But they actually have poor depth perception. And this is where our shepherd needs to come in. He actually, we need him to be our eyes. We need him to see things ahead that we can't see and let him protect us. Let him keep us. And so, again, we're going to need that staff to keep us on the path of righteousness. We need his, his protection. But it might not feel like that when we're in the valley. You know, those deep, dark nights of the soul. We actually have to be dependent on him and humble enough to wait for his timing, knowing that he's the one who's going to set the table because he says in the end, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. There is a victory after the valley. There is a big victory and a big triumph waiting for it, but sometimes we just have to cling to him and let him fight that battle for us and depend on him to do it. The battle is the Lord's. Humility won't jump in and try and fix it ourselves. We get ourselves into a lot of trouble when we do that. And David wrestled that in the Psalms. <clears throat> God said, you know, um, G, uh, David said, do you see what they're doing, Lord? Do you see what they're doing to me? My own friend has betrayed me. But reading David, he just let the Lord fight every battle for him. And he gave glory to the Lord after every battle. And then so the last one is, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the first point here is sheep are are really susceptible to flies landing on their nose and it's pretty gross because they'll go up into the nose cavity, into the brain, burrow in the brain and they get so irritated they'll start butting their head against a tree to try and get rid of this irritation. These little tiny bugs can cause a whole lot of damage. And I think I spoke about that last time, these little bugs and critters, you know. And the shepherd will then have to anoint the sheep's head every day to avoid this from happening. And that's what we we need to depend on the Lord to do. We need to come to him for the oil and say, Lord, I need you to guard my mind from these attacks. And, And we also need to renew our own minds. But a big part of it is depending on him to anoint us with this beautiful oil and, and, and guard our minds from the cheap tactics of the enemy. But it also tells me that the oil comes after the valley. So humility isn't going to be cheap. It's going to be a rough road to get to the blessing. But when we've rested in the pasture, when we're drinking of the word, when we're walking through the valley, when we're depending on him to protect us, that's when we get that oil of joy at the end. 
it will come. He will satisfy you with his presence. And we will go into that deeper understanding of what his presence really means, actually sitting with him, letting that overflowing cup go over us and trusting in him that that sweet overflow of Holy Spirit will come. And so the crushing is pivotal to the victory of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. And so we acknowledge the journey the journey of this psalm is to get to the house, isn't it? It's to get to that house and abide in that house with the Lord. It's like we've been tried, we've been tested, we've, we've done the work with the Lord, we've sat with him, we've read with him, we've poured out our souls to him. And now, once he restores all of that, we can acknowledge it's his mercy, it's his goodness, and it's his grace that has brought us through that time. And now we're just resting and being refreshed in his oil because we know there's nowhere else we would rather be than in his house. And I just wanted to finish on Deuteronomy 8, 2-3 because I felt it summed up this psalm really well. It says, And you shall remember the whole way, through the whole journey, through all the seasons, that your Lord, your God, has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, There you go. There it is. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. There's that motive, knowing what's in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments. And he humbled you to let you hunger and feed you with manna, which you didn't know, to make you know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That just sums up humility and dependence. And so we see here that humility, it's so pure in motive and heart. Humility doesn't arrive. It simply goes deeper into the Lord, into what he's he's speaking to us. It it sees Jesus and realizes nothing of worth can be done separate from him. So we're not trying to do things in our own strength anymore. We're simply saying, what do you have for me to do? And be obedient to that. So humility then will actually make us faster to obedience because now we're hearing his voice. Now we're washing in the water of the word. Now we're getting that oil that we need for that calling. And so this is why Jesus says, I need you to come to me. Come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. That's who he is. And so to finish off, it makes me realize that we can't be any of those seven I am statements I made at the beginning. We can't be the true vine. We can't be the resurrection and the life. We can't be the way, the truth, and the life. But we can be and emulate his personal nature. And if Jesus says he is humble at heart, we can become that. We can do that. So let's finish in prayer. Jesus, thank you. We are in awe of your humble nature, the way that you served and the way you love your people with such tenderness and compassion. Lord, help us to recognize the pride in our life. Help us to turn away from looking at ourselves and just because we know humility turns its focus and its eyes back on you. And so, Jesus, we surrender to your ways and your will. And I ask, Lord, that you would reveal things in each person's heart to them in that time they spend with you that we haven't yet surrendered to you. Help us to become deeper in obedience and dependence on you. In Jesus' name. Amen.